Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the self-care unit. This week, we have Britt Frank with us. Britt is a clinician, educator, trauma specialist, and the author of The Science of Stuck, Breaking Through Inertia to Find Your Path Forward. And she's here with us today to educate us on what it looks like to get unstuck, which I feel like is very needed right now at the new year because I, myself, Sarah, and I were just talking about this behind the scenes, but I'm feeling a lot of pressure, as always. So I'm really excited to talk to you, Britt. How are you doing, first of all? Yay. Well, it's 30 below where I live, so that's just <laughs> stupid. That's just like wrong, but I'm good other than that. Are you on the East Coast? I'm not. I'm in the Midwest. I've done East Coast life, West Coast life, Midwest life, but 30 below is like yeah. the North Pole. Like it was the polar vortex is back. We're in California and I'm like, oh my God, it's exactly. 60. I'm freezing. And then I remember I'm from Indiana. So I, I remember that and I don't miss that. You know, <laughs> you know. Yes. Yeah, I've got two turtlenecks on. Am I a little dramatic? I am from Florida though. Well, okay, that's born that, in New Jersey. Matters. Yeah. But lived in Florida, so never had a real winter except like two days a year. And then we come here and we're like, is it is it supposed to be this cold here? Apparently not. <laughs> I don't know. But I think like the like that's the Midwest and then like the East Coast kind of got punished because everyone was pointing out how it's it was kind of hot at the start mm-hmm. of the winter. <laughs> and now it's like, no, <laughs> you're in trouble. Never mind. <laughs> this okay. is fine. Perfect retribution. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Britt, for our listeners, many of whom may feel stuck in their own terms, what do you define that as the whole stuck and how does science come into play? Yeah, so it it's really important to me, especially in the Instagrammy, TikTok, social media world, to be very responsible with my words. So the disclaimer I put on everything is when I'm talking about being stuck, I am not talking about systemic oppression, poverty, severe and persistent mental illness, being in a war, like anywhere where choices are notably absent, that's not stuck. That's trauma. That's oppression. That's a whole nother ball game. When I talk about being stuck in my work and in my book, I'm talking about people for whom there's no logical reason why you can't do the thing. Like, I want to drop the weight. I want to quit the drinking. I want to stop going to Target and spending $600 all the time. Like whatever it is, there's no logical reason. There's no overt safety concern. And most people think, well, I'm stuck because I'm stupid or I'm stuck because I'm lazy. And the science comes in because there's a reason that we get stuck in this gap between what we know we want and what we find ourselves doing. And it has nothing to do with laziness or lack of motivation. Thank God. But yeah, there's a science to why you're stuck. It's not the story you're telling yourself. And fortunately, yay science, there's a way out. Yeah, I have a very bad relationship with if I'm not productive, feeling lazy and unmotivated. And that is my biggest thing that I'm trying to give myself the grace for because I don't know where that stems from. It's probably our society and blah, 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 blah. But as a nurse, it's like if I'm, that's a very... I'll have a very hard 12-hour shift, and I tell myself, you deserve that day off. You deserve to take that self-care for yourself. Relax. But I'm like, no, I need to go grocery shopping. I need to do the workout. I need to do all these things, or else I feel lazy, and I don't trying to get out of that mindset. So this is very good. 
It's tough though, because I think for helping professionals, you know, I work with a lot of nurses. I work with a lot of emergency responders, helpers, whatever, anywhere where you're in service of people in a high intensity environment. The thing that we, I know, I don't know about you, but I was never taught this. And this is what I do for a living. I was never taught that high intensity environments are physiologically addicting. Meaning even though it's yes, after a 12 hour marathon shift, you deserve to rest and you should give yourself the grace to rest your brain is now addicted to all those stress hormones. It's the strangest design of the human brain that we've got this little pharmacy inside of our skull and in stressful environments, it goes more, more of that, please. Yes, more, do more. It's very odd, but it's a physiological addiction, not a personal failing or a character weakness. We feel lazy because we're going through withdrawal and it's like, wait, what? But yes, that's what that is. And withdrawal sucks, even if it's withdrawing off of a, you know, a substance or a shift or whatever. Anytime we're not getting the thing our brain thinks we need, we're going to feel like crap. I, I just really appreciate your like no bullshit disclaimer that is so needed because you hear so many buzzwords and it's often from non-clinicians online and it doesn't address for the environment. And when it comes to healthcare workers in particular, people provide us with feedback. Like I can't just meditate. I can't just self-care it away. I can't just do yoga. I need like to be able to put food on the uh, table for my family. So I'm going to pick up overtime, even though my body is saying no, 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 no. I am like going to continue to face trauma as long as I have to stay in this workplace where my manager is bullying or harassing me and I have no way out because my manager is blocking me from leaving my unit or they've alerted HR and I've become a problem. And so if I want to get a job in any other facility in this area, which is a monopoly, I have to be quiet and I have to continue in this abusive relationship. Like putting out this kind of like almost like buzzwords around things that deeply impact us as human beings and often things that are outside of our control or are very difficult to remove ourselves from can be almost like a slap in the face, especially when you're faced with it consistently. And especially when you're the onus is placed on you as an individual trying to navigate these systems of oppression and harm. So Like, I appreciate that so much. And as someone who had to leave the bedside because of an injury and um, started a nonprofit, somehow through that, I spent two years burning myself out while working for myself. (laughs) Like, Like working, like I was my boss technically. And I was literally like, you need to keep going, Sarah. Why are you, why are you resting? Why are you stopping? Like, if you don't make this happen, if you don't create the thing that fixes healthcare worker mental health in six months, you failed our entire generation of healthcare workers and everyone after. 
And it's like, I'm, mm, I'm not laughing at you. I'm just like, I have that voice too. And you, you so brilliantly articulated two very big problems. One is this just set boundaries, work-life balance, just stand up and advocate for yourself. It's like, welcome to the real world where like you, you said it perfectly. If you're in an environment where your work is a monopoly and you can't go to another hospital in town, once you've been labeled, like you can't set boundaries where that's happening and you can't self-advocate where that's happening and you can't just quit if that's happening. And that does change. And it's, it's a form of systemic gaslighting to put the burden of feel better on the person who is subject to those factors. That doesn't mean there's nothing to be done. It just means the rah-rah stuff is not the stuff to be done. And then the other problem that you named, and I get it because I work for myself is, well, just work for yourself and then you're free. And it's like, has anyone ever been an entrepreneur? Like then it's the pressure to build the thing, to make the thing, to sustain the thing. And to know that there's no going home at the end of the day when you're the business. It's just, how do I pause, eat, sleep, pee, bio needs and get back to work. But we have to start by framing the problem accurately or we're not going to solve it. So thank you for naming that so well. And it's like, somehow you, like, I can be the most terrible person to myself. <laughs> like, when you realize that, it's like, whoa, what is going on? <laughs> that's, that's quite terrible. Um, so like part of your work um, has to do with dismantling myths that we believe that keep us stagnant. Some of these myths we've kind of already addressed and it leads to burnout or moral distress within the healthcare field. And all of them have to do with anxiety specifically. So can you talk about some of these myths and how we disrupt them not only in our um, workplace life, but in our day-to-day life? And if I sound nasally, it's because I was sick for two weeks, y'all. Uh, Wear a mask if you can. (laughs) So sorry that you got sick all December. It's crazy out there right now. So, you know, the thing with anxiety, and again, as a mental health clinician, I did not learn this in graduate school. I did not learn this in independent supervision or in my clinical practice. I learned this doing very expensive, optional, supplemental brain training. And so part of the problem is that people go to therapists to feel better, but they don't know that most therapists, unless they have this extra training, were never trained in the brain, which is, that's like being a nurse and never being trained in anatomy. It's like, wait, what's the disconnect here? But it's true. And so with anxiety, we were all taught that it's a disease, a disorder, it's a problem inside you, and you just need to do your coping skills and your box breathing and your nervous system regulation or whatever the you know trendy buzzword intervention of the day is, and you'll be fine. But anxiety is not, again, I'm not saying anxiety is not a huge problem. It's a problem, but anxiety is not the problem, nor is it a sign that your brain is broken. Anxiety is the smoke alarm of our brain. It's doing what brains are supposed to do, which is to flip out if there's a problem. Now we get into trouble because we don't always, we don't always know what the problem is. Sometimes the problem is not immediate. Like a bad thing happens. Now I feel anxious. If only it were that simple. It could be like you smelled raisins and now you're having a panic episode in your body. It's like, I don't know why, I don't know why I went to raisins, but like, I don't know why that smell it's because raisins smell like cigarettes. And so I used to smoke for 20 years and that's where I went. Anyway, see, (laughs) brains are weird. 
But anxiety is not the problem. It's the signal. And we get so hypnotized by the discomfort and terror of anxiety, which it is, that we forget it's doing a job. And its job is often right. Hey, you're in an abusive work environment. Hey, that coworker is bullying you. Hey, if you don't pick up an extra overtime shift, even though you're not going to sleep, you're not going to make rent. And so that, again, that doesn't necessarily mean you're doing something wrong. Sometimes we're doing what we can and that's all we can do. But anxiety is on our side. Anxiety is not our disease. It's our superpower. I hate it too. I really do. I, I have PTSD. I have complex trauma. I do not enjoy anxiety, but it is a sign that our brains are doing what they're supposed to do. And our brains are on our side. There are billions of dollars of industries that profit off of us thinking that there's an enemy inside our head and we have to fight it. We have to, you know, vanquish it. And we have to beat our inner critic and shut up all those voices. And, but it's like, if you're fighting with yourself, no one's going to win. So I really am big on changing the framework. Anxiety is the smoke alarm. We have to figure out where the fire is. I'm already very inspired. <laughs> like, okay, yes. And I'm trying to do <laughs> changing my anxiety into excitement, you know, just making the feeling something more positive because I talk about this all the time, but I have flight anxiety and I'm going to Costa Rica in June and I'm straight already worried about it, already worried about the long flight. I have a red eye. I'm like, what can I take to go to sleep? Which is not something I necessarily want to do, but that's how my brain works. And so I'm trying to reframe it into this is so exciting. You're going to Costa Rica. You're going on a tropical vacation with your like with your family. This is going to be a great thing. And so I'm trying to reframe it, but it's obviously a lot easier said than done. So do you have any advice for not just anxiety, but trying to start to reframe into certain ways that might make things more positive or achievable, I should say? Yeah. And again, no shade to the reframing anxiety is excitement. I do it too. And I have really bad flight anxiety and I have performance anxiety. And so I, I learned, and sometimes it works to reframe the I'm not scared. I'm excited. It's a great tool, but it does sort of toe the line between invalidating your feelings. It's like, you're afraid of flying. Do we have to make it positive? Can it be okay that you're scared? And then the intervention there isn't try to talk yourself into feeling a positive affect. The intervention there for me, one thing that helps a lot for me is uh, me to remind myself that the pilots know more than I do. They have information that I don't, and they're really invested in this plane staying in the air. Like they're really invested in doing the things that I'm scared won't happen and they know what they're doing. And I just keep drilling that they know, I don't know why this is happening and I want to die right now, but they know what's going on. They know what's going on. They know what's going on. But if you have any type of like attachment wounds where someone who was supposed to do something for you didn't, then it's really hard to trust that the pilots are going to take care of you. That's why I'm like, it's, it's in their best interest to do their job well. It's not about them caring about me. It's about them caring about them. I have lots of faith in people's rational self-interest, yeah. but you know, it's not always a reframe and we can get re and I know a lot of my clients feel really crappy because they're trying to positively reframe and they still feel terrible. So then it's like, well, what's my problem? What if we leaned into the awfulness of the feeling and instead of reframing it, and again, reframing works sometimes. So like, it's never a bad idea to try it if it works cool, but rather than reframing the situation, 
I like to go to what are my choices given how crappy the situation is? Like, let's just assume it's as negative as it is. I feel as bad as I feel. What are three choices I have right now? And just like paying attention to your choices is going to pump the brakes on your parasympathetic system and make you feel a little bit less revved up. So I really like going to choice power rather than to trying to wrestle a turd into a diet. (laughs) I love that. I like too that you brought up having a choice because I think that's my main issue is the control. So it's maybe it's the trust issue with it's and it's I have nothing against pilots. That's their job. I do trust them at their core. But as you said, it's like I'm not up front driving. If I'm driving, I know who's in control. It's me. I got this. But it's just something it's hard to relieve that control, to release that control. Mm-hmm. It's so hard. Yeah. And it can, and people feel silly, but it does feel like an attack sometimes when you're left to, and then your brain is going to respond as if you're being attacked, which is often the source of things like anxiety during flights. And so again, it's, um, it's what are my choices before you get on the plane? It'll help to remind your brain. No one's forcing me to do this. I recognize it's going to be scary. And then saying to yourself, I am choosing to relinquish control for the next two hours to these people in that cockpit. Just naming that sometimes can be enough. Again, you're not going to feel sunshine and roses, but naming your I choose this can help at least keep you within a window of being able to tolerate. The okay, I'll have your voice in my head. There's like nothing. They're on our side. <laughs> there's like nothing you can do to make sure the plane lands that they're not already doing. And then the alternative is like driving for a full day. <laughs> so it's like, do you want to like, flights. exactly, you want to get there quick and just have your vacation and sacrifice like two hours of being terrified versus, you right. know, 12 hours or 24 hours of driving. <laughs> Another brain hack for flights. <laughs> this one is dark, but it, it does, it does help. It's like, if everything goes to hell on this flight, my brain will go into shock, which means I won't actually have to feel, experience, see, or hear what's happening around me. Like there will be a point if everything I'm afraid will happen happens where my shock system will take over and I won't have to be present for it. Those blackout. Yeah. <laughs> I like that too. <laughs> I was hoping you'd go that far because that's where I was thinking. And that's what helps me is like, yeah. this is a tube in the sky. Like, if the tube in the sky, if anything goes wrong, like there's nothing I can do. And it was my time. So <laughs> like, and it's okay. So and I know like a lot of people are having flight anxiety right now because of like Boeing and the the Maxes. So that's the other component too, is like you can't control the fact that corporations aren't, you know checking the things that put us in the air that's a whole other conversation (laughs) yeah i'm like this got dark real fast yeah anyway um something and this has been like consistent in our conversation so far but something that people really recognize you for in particular is your humor and how helpful it makes things and like i cope so much with humor and people are like oh you're so funny and like Anytime someone says that, like, it's it's a running joke for people who are really funny naturally is like, ah, it's the trauma. <laughs> so, like, how has the humor helped you in your own journey and getting your message across? And, um, yeah, I just – I love making people laugh while talking about things that really fucking suck. And you do it so well. <laughs> 
Oh my god, it's so it's the trauma made me funny. Like I'm obsessed with stand-up comedy and I'm funny accidentally. Like I can be funny in a conversation, but I did a two-minute stand-up set a few months ago and being funny on purpose in that setting is scarier than flying and mad respect to people who sit down and write stuff and then stands on a stage with nothing except hoping that what they said that's funny to them lands with other people. Oh my God, terror, never again, but mad respect. But humor is a really nice anesthetic for a lot. Again, it can, like anything, any medicine can be taken in an improper way and cause problems. Sometimes humor is used to bypass pain. Sometimes humor is used to invalidate pain. But when you are facing a pain, a little bit of humor goes a long way. And I'm certainly not one to make light of pain. Like I'm very open about my trauma, my assault history, my addiction history, but I'm not making fun of your pain. I'm making fun of mine. If I want to laugh at the fact that if you break a meth pipe, you can MacGyver a new one out of a light bulb. I can laugh about that because that's my stuff. So I think we all need to laugh. Otherwise there's like this existential dread that sinks in and laughter is a really good way to manage that. But laughter is like, you got to use it in the right dose, in the right amounts for it to be medicinal versus poisonous. I really, I, I'm a component and believer that like humor and laughter and like really tactful comedians help change the world and like really reshape the way we think about things and can humanize the things that we ignore the most in society. Um, There's a comedian, I can't remember her name, but I think she has cerebral palsy and she's the butt of her joke, but it also reframes how people perceive her and often as not a human being almost when they realize that she has a disability or the fact that she's able to perform on stage and um, do so incredibly well and make people laugh and be articulate while having her disability and how dehumanizing it is that the brain on people who are like, um, I guess, able-bodied, that's what you default to because of what our society has gone to. Or when people are able to tactfully talk about issues like addiction based on lived experience, it helps people humanize and empathize and understand in a different way and maybe look at their family members and friends and reach out to them or um, change the way they perceive the people around them. And that's such a powerful thing. But there are people who use humor as a form of control or in a way to change people's minds towards what they see fit um, so that that benefits them personally or benefits a larger power. And that's tragic, but with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> I do. I think that hum- like, like a really good stand-up comment, like humorists are, are geniuses because they've got to balance truth with entertainment. They have to find universal truths that we all experience and then make them funny. It's a hard, anyone who's like, oh, that guy sucks. I'm like, you do it then. You take the big mic, you get on stage and you do it. And like, yeah. That's a level of vulnerability that I never will have. (laughs) Like, I hate public speaking as it is, but getting up there and if people didn't laugh, I would cry myself off the stage. Like, that's, I just know that would happen. 
it was horrible. I mean, it was never again. Like giving speech, public speeches is so much easier because if you accidentally crack a joke in front of a corporate audience, it's funny. But when you're at a bar and everyone's drunk and they're like, make me laugh. It's like, uh, no, my nervous system was like, yep, nope, we did it. We checked the box. Never <laughs> I feel again. like nurses understand humor, but we have our dark humor as I think Sarah, you but yeah, <laughs> yeah. that. You have to be with the right audience because or else the joke doesn't land and they're just like, you need to go get therapy. Exactly. Like, Baby. <laughs> <laughs> so where have you seen the biggest points of difficulty or resistance in folks getting unstuck? I think the biggest source of stuckness is our insistence that we know why. Like I need to know why. I'm stuck. I need to know why. I need to know the origin. I need to understand. And again, I, I'm an analyst by trade. I have built my entire life around understanding why we do things. But you don't need to know why a building's on fire to know, get out, like go. I don't care why the building caught on fire. I just know I need to get out. But when we sit in this analysis, analysis, rumination thing, we're still, you can have all the insight in the world, but insight without an action equals you're just really smart and stuck. And that's not helpful. So I think, and people are very insistent on, I have to know why first, and I'll validate the need to know why is valid, but not to get unstuck. Step one, get unstuck by taking little tiny baby actions. I call them micro yeses. Once you, and a micro yes is smaller than a small step and it's smaller than a baby step. It's like the stupidest small thing. Like it's like, think about putting your shoes by the door. That's your micro yes today. If you like, don't take a walk, think about putting your shoes by the door. Then tomorrow, put your left one by the door. And then the next day, put your right one. And then people are like, how am I supposed to do anything if I'm taking steps this small? And the answer is a lot faster than if you keep fighting with yourself, making promises and breaking them. Micro yeses build momentum. And in order to change habits or to do things we want to do, we don't need motivation. We need momentum. Micro yeses build momentum. Then you can ask why. Like once you're up and running and you've got that 5 a.m. gym habit or whatever your thing is locked down, then if you want to know why it was hard, we can figure out why. But why is a mile seven question, not a starting gate question? I love that. That feels a lot more attainable. And I, I try to do that with setting boundaries for work and coming in extra. It's like, okay, I used to come in for a full shift. And now I come in for that six hour, relieve the nurses for a break shift. The other day I came in for four hours and I was like, I'm here. I did what I could tolerate and now I'm gone. Bye-bye. And that, that seems to be working for me in that realm. So. I love that. And the trick with those smaller steps is you can't beat yourself up after doing them. So like if you did a four hours, then it's yay, go me. I did four hours instead of, oh, I should have done more. And, you know, they really needed me to do more because micro yeses don't win if you beat the crap out of yourself for doing them. You have to do a micro step, then give yourself credit. And again, you don't need to like have a parade, just yay, I did a thing, go me, and then move on. But bank the wins, do them again, do them again, give your brain what it wants, which is small, tiny things to do. Our brains hate big. So feed it little bites. I, I just, I could be really rigid. And like when we have a plan and my husband's like, we need to deviate from this plan. My immediate thought is why. And I'm like, but in my mind, we were doing this thing. And now my mind has to understand that we're not doing this thing. So now what am I going to fill that time that we're not doing this thing with? 
I'm not prepared for this. And I want to know why we're not doing this thing. And then I just like shut down. <laughs> and it's terrible. Right? And now I completely understand. Like the way you said, like, sure, you could have insight, but you're just really smart and stuck. I'm like, ah, oh, seen forever and ever and ever. <laughs> um, that explains everything. So thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when the plans change, like, why are we changing the plan? And again, I am the same way. I'm very rigid with my schedule. Um, but instead of why are the plans changing, even if you just said, oh, boy, my brain does not like this change of plan, just naming that is going to get you into that momentum place faster than the why. Because now your husband is on the defensive and your why is going to, like, make him well well and this happened and this is why and now you're pissed because he's defensive versus just oh my brain doesn't like this what are my choices what are my choices does a lot of jobs it's a great question so I don't do it on myself enough I think I've accidentally done that because like when I've been faced with like frustration from my husband about me wanting to know why and like needing an explanation and then him being like, let's just do it anyway, even though like we didn't want to do this. Like I realized that I need to explain how it makes me feel when the plan is disrupted based on like the fact that my brain is like preparing for the plan. And when that falls through, my brain is devastated because it did all this work and I was robbed of the, <laughs> of the experience. Yes. <laughs> so well put and so he understands yeah yes and like he's like oh okay I understand now and like I understand why you are like frustrated when things change and so I think that's just that communication is so important and especially when you have to navigate a brain that does all these things while also having a partner whose brain does all these things but in a different way that's tough and then we wonder why divorce rates are so high (laughs) But we're doing great, guys. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I get so stressed out with Um, multiple multiple people going to one thing and trying to formulate, you know, if it's amusement park, whatever it may be. And it's like, well, we want to go to this ride first. We want to go to this one first. Okay. And now we're all moving at a glacial pace towards this one thing, but some people don't want to do it. And that's when my control thing freaks out, Sarah, because it's kind of the same thing. And I'm like, I want to control everybody. We're going here at this time because I'm an itinerary person. And I, it's, it's something I'm trying to release that and just go with the flow, which like you said, luckily my partner, he's amazing. He's very go with the flow. So we balance each other very well, but he knows <laughs> me because he's got a big family. So they're always like, let's do things together. But then I started making my, my boundary of let's drive separately. So I can leave when I want to. I don't feel that stress of, yeah. I'm just standing here not wanting to be here anymore. <laughs> so we're learning. I still get separate cars, separate bedrooms, separation saves relationships. But that's a whole nother episode. But like, and then like codependence goes into that, which is like uh-huh. intergenerational, like childhood trauma. And, stuff like that. and like, that's tough to navigate. But like, when you actually realize like why you are the way that you are and you make changes and then you're faced with like similar behaviors that you would fall into, you're like, oh, I don't want that. And then you hope to help that other person like maybe change their behaviors based on like your boundary setting. And it's just interesting. Like when you like actually like, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, when, is weird. it's so weird. It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you're 
like struggling to find balance, which is another buzzword. I mean, let's be honest. Um, what is something that like grounds you, which is another buzzword <laughs> and helps you feel better mentally? Question mark. <laughs> yeah, that's like a whole bunch of little like explosive zones waiting to happen. But it's an important question and it's one everyone answers. So I can go there quickly. Um Rather than how do I get more balance? Because like, what the hell does that even mean? Like, what, what? I don't know what that means. How do I get grounded? I don't know what that means either. I mean, I do, and you do. But like, let's take this out of that realm and just go to if you're not feeling how you want to feel, whatever it might be, unbalanced, ungrounded, dysregulated, go back to what are my choices? Because if you're feeling unbalanced, it's likely a boundary problem, not a balance problem. So when people say they want more work-life balance, usually what they mean is I need more work-life boundaries. And again, if you're working in an oppressive environment where that's not a choice, then that's not a choice. Then balance is not going to be on your menu of options. Then we need to come up with, if you need this job, what are your other choices? If you know you're going to get your ass kicked at work for 12 hours, what are your choices for some extra aftercare for yourself? You might need to work harder after your shift than if you had a pleasant working environment, but we've got to access choice. Well, I hate that my job is this way. I hate that your job is that way too. That sucks. Truth. And we still need to access choice in order to feel better, to feel balanced, to feel grounded. So if you can, not you, but whoever, pivot back to what are my choices here? One, that'll help you stay out of that victim mentality. And then there's a difference between being victimized and being a victim. Like legit, if someone assaults you or abuses you or bullies you, they are victimizing you. But when you say, I have no options, and that's not always true, sometimes it's true. But if it's not, then we need to go, no, 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 no. What's happening to you is horrible. On a one to 10, it's a solid 10 across the board. And I'm sure, because I'm looking at the board, that you have two options. You may not love them, but we need to find our way to choice to be able to get our brain to stay online so we can keep moving and not get stuck. I don't always like my choices, but anytime you make a choice, you're no longer stuck. So choices get us unstuck. <laughs> Mike, drop. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for it. I honestly, I feel inspired and I already added your book to my Goodreads because we're trying to get to 60 books this year Yay! and I want that to be one of them. Yay, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Of course. And to anyone listening who wants more from her, please check out her Instagram at Britt Frank and it's two T's or her website, scienceofstuck.com. Thank you. Thank you so much for blowing Thanks our for minds. Thanks for having me. This was fun. <laughs>